As I said in the last session, um, taking this theme of the Spirit-filled church, a number of themes, number of chapters in the book that we're kind of focusing on, and uh, the one I want to finish our weekend on, or at least this particular part of our being together, is being a people who worship God in spirit and in truth. It's true to say that worship has been phenomenally transformed across the churches in recent generations, certainly from when I became a Christian those many years ago when worship was simply the rather cold preliminaries uh, before you heard someone preach to you to something that's quite remarkably different. Some people will even talk about the worship movement, which I don't much like. Some will even talk about the worship business, which I like even less. <laughs> but it's a very vital part of what God is doing in reviving his church, that he is restoring worship. And I'm so thrilled to come on the back of such a beautiful worship time. I think it's important for us to just kind of back up, and I want to do that, and uh, in the time we have, build some principles, I trust. The Bible says this, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When man sinned, he was uh, banished from the glory. He was banished from Eden. He was put outside. He was distanced from the God of glory. Banished. He's in exile. Man, the human race is in exile. Man made in the image and likeness of God. Paul says uh, in Ephesians 4, they walk in the futility of their mind. Made in God's image and likeness. Sons of God, as it were, and yet walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart, having become callous, given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. It's an ugly, ugly picture. Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in trespasses and sins. We were cut off from the life of God. When man sinned, the day you do that, you will die. And you walk around in this ignorance, this hardness of heart, this sensuality. You're kind of existing, but we've fallen short of the glory of God. And then God began to bring about his great purpose of redemption. And uh, we read in the scripture, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. God's glory began to outwork itself. And he brought a man into fellowship with him. A God of glory appeared to him. And he called Abraham my friend. And Abraham was permitted to fellowship with God. And suddenly, God is breaking through again with his glory. He's beginning to have a people and promises Abraham, through your seed, all the families of the earth. There's going to be a phenomenal recovery program. People are going to be brought back to the glory of God, to know God, to fellowship with God, to experience God. And then we find that Moses, for instance, suddenly sees a, a glory bush a bush that's full of magnificent fire, but it's not consumed. It doesn't go up in smoke. Uh, that's the glory of God. Uh, and God is beginning to make himself known to a people and then travels with them in the pillar of glory. Uh, by night, it's on fire, as it were. By day, there's this glory cloud. And, and at one point, God says, hey, you're sinning so much, and I, I, I'm going to withdraw. Moses says, no, no, no. If your presence doesn't go with us, we're not going anywhere. And again, you get uh, this great man of prayer, 
and realizing this is what makes your people distinct. God wasn't coming in Australia and Mexico and Russia. He came to this people, uniquely, this people. And Moses understood that that's what makes us distinct in the whole world. Your presence is with us. We're getting, we're getting recovered to the glory. We're coming back to knowing God, the God who made us. We can, we can fellowship with you. And if you're not going, come on. And he argues and prays, and God says, okay, I'll keep going with you. And this nation has this massive privilege that they, they know God. And God's with them. And they travel through and then ultimately are brought through into the land. And then Jerusalem. And then the temple. And we haven't time to quote all the Psalms, but it talks about the God of glory who came uh, in Sinai. He came in great glory into into the temple in Jerusalem. His majesty came. The glory was so great they couldn't enter. God's glory was back among his people. And so we get these wonderful psalms that speak about how lovely is your dwelling place. O Lord of hosts, my soul longs and yearns for the courts of the Lord. Just to be with God. Just uh, this, is, this amazing, huge privilege that we can spend time in God's presence. Of course, David was thoroughly fascinated with the prospect of being with God, to be in uh, the courts of God, uh, and just to long for and know his presence. So uniquely, and you get these wonderful psalms that say, why are you other mountains jealous of this mountain where God has been pleased to dwell? And Zion becomes figurative of the people, the place where God dwells, the people who know God's presence. And of course, it's distinctly there in the temple, uniquely in the temple, the glory of God comes. And then, of course, coming right through, we come through to the day when Jesus comes to usher in the next phase of God's great plan. And Jesus comes up to Jerusalem, and the apostles say, wow, look at the temple, Lord. And he says, hey, not one stone will stand on another. That's radical. What do you mean? This is the center. This is the glory. And then the, the woman at Samaria says, you know, should we worship in Jerusalem? Or should we worship in Samaria? Uh, and he says, <laughs> effectively, forget it. God is looking for those who not just worship here or there, but who will worship him in spirit and in truth. There's a new day dawning, a new possibility of drawing near to God, no longer limited as it has been in the past. The possibility of a people becoming a temple. And suddenly God is going to be accessible. Of course, you get that time when Jesus, uh, they bring a cripple to Jesus, and he says to him, your sins are forgiven. And, and the Pharisees say, how dare you say that? Only God can forgive sin. And it's like, hey, we've, we, we run the temple. That's their problem. We run the temple. You want forgiveness of sins? We can arrange that. Uh, come to us, and uh, you can buy a lamb. But of course, we won't use your stuff. Change it to our money, uh, temple money, and we get our rake off. And, uh, and then we can provide you with... And, you know, we've got forgiveness of sins buttoned up here in the temple. Uh, you want forgiveness of sins? Come to us. We've got that. It's in the temple here, and we run the temple. We're, we've got, we're in charge of all this. And what do you mean, forgive sins? And then Jesus says, that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. Get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. And God is accessible on the street. You can know God. The temple's here. God's, God's breaking out. And of course, when Jesus dies on the cross, the temple curtain, curtain is ripped 
from top to bottom. And he's ushering in a new age of the temple, a new temple. We are the temple of God. We are where he dwells. We are where his presence is known. So, beloved, we must never underestimate the importance of the gathered believers to worship. It's huge. It's not just a movement. It's not just a fad. It's, it's, it's theologically massive. We are God's dwelling place. When we gather to worship, it is a breathtaking responsibility, privilege, and honor, and wonder. It gives us opportunity to develop our fascination with God. It gives the man in the world with his job, his insurance, his children, his responsibilities, his mortgage. Oh, I can come into the worship presence of God. It's, it's massive. We come to be with him. We come to be renewed in him. We come to be refreshed in him. And we come and experience something of the wonder of his being with us. I, I think we need to really not miss the vital role of the gathered church in worship. The worship meeting, the, the, the place where the Spirit of God is present, is of huge importance to the Spirit-filled church. Worship is such a fundamental center to who we are and what we're doing. Now, some would argue that worship is a lifestyle. It's not about singing. When we had uh, our friend Mark Driscoll with us in England, he said, oh, you sing a lot, uh, which was kind of different from where we were coming from. And he understood, well, now, Romans 12, it says, you know, we present our bodies, which is uh, our logical worship. Uh, it's a lifestyle of just pleasing God, doing... Now, that's perfectly appropriate to say that's what the New Testament says, that our lives, our choices, our preferences, uh, that's all worship. But you can't get away from the gathering of the saints to worship and honor his presence and touch him and be touched by him. It's of huge importance to the spirit-filled church. It's a massive value that I, I want to just finish our sessions with. It's a massive value. We're gathering in the presence of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's important for us to enjoy what's taking place and take full advantage of the opportunity that we have to freshly meet with God together and see this manifested. We're here with God. And when we, when we do it properly, if I can put it that way, all kinds of things are possible. All kinds of things can't start happening. It's, there's a dynamic in worship that is more than just singing a few songs. There is something to be reached for, something to be experienced, and the Spirit-filled church is a high, high value for us. So it's, I just want to talk about three words. We could approach this in so many different ways. You'll find the chapter in the book, The Spirit-filled Church approaches it pretty differently to what I'm going to say, but we could come at it lots of ways, but I can't uh, understate the vital role of gathering to worship. I want to look at it under three words, okay? First of all, the word liberty. Liberty. Because sometimes uh, our kind of churches are associated with liberty because um, uh, uh, there's a greater, uh, a greater freedom. And sometimes we can we'll think, well, what, 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 is, what is that? What are we talking about? And sometimes we'll throw in a verse like, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But what do we mean? And do we mean it's just more relaxed? It's less formal? It's less structured. You can be relaxed in church. Is that what we're saying? Sometimes uh, we find some of the songs. Uh, and Matt Redman, a wonderful, gifted guy out of the UK, 
He, he's written songs that say, we're, we're a shouting, dancing generation. Uh, and uh, he's written songs that have lines like this, I will be even more undignified than this. It's kind of liberty in your face. And you think, well, what are we saying? Is this, is this a young gen? Is this a, a youth thing? You know, I'll be more undignified than this. You know, I'm going to really smash your meeting to pieces to show my liberty. And, uh, and we, we've got a song we say, well, I'm, I'm dancing on holy ground. You think, you're doing what on holy ground? And so sometimes liberty can be almost like a fist in your face. We're, we're enjoying freedom. But what do we mean by that? Is it, is it just a young people's movement? Is it something young people enjoy? What, what do we really mean? What is, in, what is involved? Well, I'll just come back into the scriptures again. What, what is being spoken about when we speak of liberty? Well, there's two phases, really. The first one is the, the, the song, the very first song in the Bible, the first worship song, is at the Exodus. You could call it Psalm 1, but it's not called a psalm. Exodus 15, they come through the Red Sea, and they come out the other side, and there's the first song, and it's a song of phenomenal liberty. It's a, our slavery is over. Our bondage is complete. We're no longer under the Egyptians' whip. We have been released. Not only that, the Passover blood has been shed. God has accepted us. He says, out of Egypt, I call my son. We're being adopted by God. There is a shout of liberty which is deeply rooted in a phenomenal thing that's taken place in their lives. They're no longer in bondage. They're no longer what they used to be. They're stepping into what God has made them to be. It's so important for us to see they've, they've left behind a whole lifestyle and come out into something glorious. That's what we're talking about. Liberty is not just about having an upbeat song. It's not just about having drums on the platform. It's about truth that God has done for us. He set us free. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I mean, the liberty is breathtaking. We who were far off have been brought near. I love that song, Out of Chaos, He Brought Us to Himself. He made, he made the orphans sons and daughters. See, what we sing, beloved, is so important. We're singing things that declare what has happened to us. And it's, so it's in spirit and in truth. The Holy Spirit owns it, but we need to be focusing on truth. That's why songs we sing are hugely important. Why do we sing what we're singing? And it's important, it's not just a pretty melody. And sometimes you can get kind of just caught up in the pretty melody and singing little gentle things and, uh, you know, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then you find yourself singing this. There's something about that name. Think, what does that mean? There's something about that name. It's such a beautiful melody. It builds up and up. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. There's the last line. Is, there's something about that name. Think, oh, thanks very much. That's really helpful. <laughs> See, what do I mean? That's what sentiment, nostalgia, nonsense. I, I, want, I want to sing something that's saying something. I mean, like the songs we've sung this morning. When I think that God sent his son. When I think not sparing him when he comes with shouting. See, it's truth that reminds us of what God has done for us that causes our hearts to explode with thanksgiving. We're really liberated. It's so important, beloved, that we understand what we're singing. I don't want my brain to go dead. I don't want to be in a worship meeting where we're singing something. I don't know what this is all about. It's not saying anything. 
my brain goes out the window. I'm off wondering what, because I, I need to focus. We need to focus. And, and we need to understand the liberty God's brought us into. And so you'll find, for instance, yes, they sang this first song when they came out of uh, Egypt. And now they're free. And they sing about it. They, they're full of thanksgiving. They're full of worship. They're full of delight. Then later, because of their sin, when they're in the land, God, said, God gives them warning after warning, prophet after prophet. And, and you know, you're going to punish you. I'm going to bring armies against you. If you don't, in the end, the ultimate thing is you're going to get thrown out again. Just like Adam and Eve were thrown out of the land. Now, they brought, see, we need to understand, Canaan was like another Eden for them. The people came into Canaan. It's like it's a land of promise. It's cities you've not built, vineyards you've not planted. But you didn't make it, it's created. It's like a new creation. And it's full of streams and rivers and honey and milk and honey. And the eye of the Lord's continually upon it. Oh, it's like Eden again. That's right. Here we go again. Not just Adam and Eve, but a nation going in into a new place. I'm giving you another opportunity. And then comes the warning. I'll bless you, but if you, if you don't, there's the cursings and there's blessings. It's like Adam and Eve. Don't do this. And, and so they're going in. And ultimately, God says to them, if you don't stop, you're out. And so Israel's thrown out of the land. They're banished. Like Adam and Eve were banished. They're out of the land. They're, not, they're no longer there. And then you find this... Uh, Psalm 126, well, 137, when it says they're away and they're in Babylon. They're no longer in the land. They belong to God, but they're not there. And then it says this, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? And they said to them, come on then, sing some of your songs of Zion. How can we? We're not in the land. We're not, we're not in the presence. We're not where the temple is. We're not where the glory is. We're out again. And then you get this wonderful revival, restoration. They come back to the land. They rebuild the temple. And then you get Psalm 126. When the Lord turned again, the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongues with joyful shouting. We've come back into the presence of God. And we found ourselves singing these kind of songs when God began to pour out his spirit upon us. As a church, coming from a somewhat formal background, and people are getting filled with the Spirit, understanding grace. And we began to sing these things. Hey, the Lord's turned our captivity. We've come out from bondage. We've come back into grace. We've come into acceptance. We're sons with the Father. We're no longer slaves. We're not just working at it. We're accepted. There's no condemnation. And we're being filled with the Spirit. And that was what we were experiencing. We're coming into an experience of renewal in the presence of God. It's like his temple is being flooded again with his presence. So for me, it's hugely important that we don't miss or lose that. Because I can remember church meetings that suddenly these kind of verses... They just became full of meaning. The Lord's turned again our captivity. We're coming right back into the presence of the Lord. After what had been some cold, formal church-going years, God was doing a fresh thing for us. And so liberty for me is liberty about biblical truth, rooted right back in the Old Testament. We're no longer under judgment. We're no longer under death and hell. No condemnation. Freed from law. Hallelujah. Freed from guilt and shame, perfected forever. So liberty is about what God has done for us. He's broken the dominion of darkness over us. 
And so when we gather, we start to sing and worship and celebrate the liberty that Jesus has proclaimed for us. So it's not simply, yeah, we, we do our meetings different. You know, we can be in jeans in church. We can have guitars. We can, I remember one, the Baptist church I was raised in, and uh, I remember once a guy came to church with a guitar in his hand. And the wife of the senior deacon was at the top of the stairs as he came up. And she, <laughs> she pointed at him. She said, you are not bringing that in here. <laughs> and I thought, wow, the theology behind that. <laughs> You're not bringing that in here. Like this building you know, where we don't talk to one another. We're all silent and uh, we're all very formal. And, uh, you know, a guitar in here. And you think, what a theology. What, what are we thinking of this building, the temple, the guitar? What is going on here? We need to know, no, it's not just about little externals. It's about we've been accepted. God's with us. God's among us. There's a freedom that comes from acknowledging him. It has all sorts of outworkings that do result in our being able to be, yes, much freer. And then as we're worshipping, it says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, and we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed. So worship begins to be a transforming experience. There's a dynamic. There's a, you grow in sanctification in a church that worships. In a church that worships, people are making decisions. They're getting fresh glimpses of God. We're having revelation of God by the Holy Spirit where people's value system gets changed, where they realize there's another power here. There's something other than us here. And, and, and we experience greater liberty. We, we, we find that doesn't matter to me so much anymore because this begins to matter to me so much. I'm meeting with God. God's meeting with me. My value system begins to, to erode and be reconstructed, not only through preaching and teaching, though that is so vital, and discipling, but actually through encounter, liberty starts happening. We step into freedom as we're worshipping. So it's a huge, huge thing, beloved. It's so very important for us that when we gather, you cannot put too high a value on the importance of the meeting where God's presence is known, where we have opportunity to enjoy him together and the fascination with God can be developed. Now, I get concerned when we say, well, actually, that's all very secondary. We're just here to win the lost. No, we want to win the lost. But if we say, well, we don't, we don't have time to just meet with God because we're here for, we just want to be, as the current word is, missional. Our meetings are missional. We don't have time to meet with God. I say, whoa, we're missing the way. The saints need to meet with God. If we're not meeting to God collectively, if we're not coming into this dimension of being the temple of the presence of God together, then we're settling for something so much less than what God wants. I've been so blessed reading uh, this book I mentioned earlier, James McDonald's book, where he talks about if the saints don't gather to his presence, we are missing a phenomenal opportunity for sanctification, for values to be put right, etc. So to me, Huge, huge thing. We gather, yes, in liberty, thanking God for the liberty he's given us, enjoying more liberty. Secondly, faith. All right, faith. When we come worshipping, it's an expression of faith. 
as you sing out, you are declaring out loud what you believe. And growing in God has a lot to do with believing what he says is true. And there's nothing like singing it out with all your heart. It's possible for us to open our Bibles, read it, but to take biblical truth and sing it and declare it does amazing things in us. So worship should be mixed with faith. It says, then they believed his promises, they sang his praise. It should go hand in hand. So we're, we're singing out what we believe. We're singing to God. We're singing, and the scripture says, to ourselves. We're singing to one another. We're declaring out truth about God, who he is, and what our relationship is with him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Worship times are places where faith grows. If we're in the spirit and we're in truth, faith keeps growing. Now, just to point out two or three areas, I think that worship without faith is empty. It says of Abraham, he grew in faith, giving praise and glory to God. Fully persuaded what God has promised, he's also able to perform. Many of us meet with uh, delays, difficulties in our experience, things we hope we get an answer to prayer from. There's delay, it's not happening the way we thought it would. It's often in the worship, the declaring of truth, that faith gets freshly born, comes to life, comes to vitality as we honor him, praise him. So I would say there are several ways. First of all, creedal faith. What do I mean by that? Well, declaring great truths, the sort of things we have in the creed. There was a, a great song written by a man called Graham Kendrick. I don't know if you know that songwriter. And he virtually put the, the creed to music. We believe in God the Father, maker of the universe. And we just used to sing that. It's not around so much anymore. Uh, but just singing out that great, great truth. And songs that hold great doctrines that's creedal faith. That's singing out what we believe. That's why great songs like Stuart Townend's In Christ Alone have swept right around the world. Why? I mean, people used to, uh, he, he comes from, from my home church, and, and the guys at home said, oh, Stuart's written a great song, a uh, new one. And I, I had a recording in my car, and I heard the melody, and I couldn't hear all the words. And I thought, yeah, it's okay. I don't know what they're quite excited about. It sounds all right. And then, and then I'm in church, and I see the words, and wow, my heart starts soaring. Why? Because of the truth, what we're singing, what we're singing. And great songs, great old hymns, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his hands. My name is graven on his heart. You know, you just sing out these truths. This, this great song... Christ alone, cornerstone. It's, it's, it's getting hold of great truth and singing it. Say, so I believe this stuff. Yeah. And Martin Luther, he knew this thing or two. When he wrote great hymns, he was serving a people who didn't read much. There weren't many literate people. So he wrote great hymns to get people to know what they believed, to sing it out. Same with the Wesleyan revival. Wesley wrote great hymns hymns. Charles Wesley put songs into the mouths of people. This is what we believe. This is what we believe. This is what we declare. So beloved, it's not just singing pretty melodies. It's declaring great truth. 
And faith grows as we do it because we're seeing things that we know to be true of God. That it's not just pretty melodies is great truth. And so I think it's an important thing for us to make sure that we're not wasting our time because we need to be singing out the truth of God. And then also, not just creedal faith, which I, it's like these are the great things I believe that I know God's going to do this for me. But also, faith under trial. So you'll find wonderful old hymns like, It is well with my soul. You know the story of that hymn, I'm sure, when uh, a guy had lost his whole family in a storm. And he wrote that hymn. It is well with my soul. And, and songs that are saying, look, I'm still going to keep believing God in spite, in spite of the situation, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the hardship. I, we're going to keep believing. And, and, and worship that declares confidence in God in the time of heartbreak. You are the everlasting God. When all around my soul gives way, I know that you are God. Songs that give you comfort. We had a time in our church again where a little child was sick and after prevail, long prayer sadly died. And you know the whole church was going through a real agony. And we had some great songwriters in the church and they, they wrote this beautiful song and it had this, this line in it that when all around my soul gives way, I know you are God. And, and, and just to sing out in the midst of pain, I'm still trusting you, Lord. So there's creedal faith. These are the great objective truths we know. Then there's, there's faith that says, I'm going to keep believing. I'm going to keep trusting you. And so as the church gathers, we're stating confidence in him. We're rising in confidence to him. Now, if we say we haven't got any time for that now, we just want to reach the outsider, you are robbing the saints of an opportunity to have their faith restored, have their courage lifted again. And yet that's what we need so much. It's vital, and it's a huge part of being a gathered, worshipping community. We gather to worship him, we believe him under pressure. And then also songs of confidence, uh, faith, advancing faith, let's put it that way. Faith, creedal faith, unchanging doctrines, faith in the midst of setback, but also advancing faith to win through. Wendy and I were in Mombasa in Kenya. Uh, we have some churches in uh, uh, Kenya, and uh, we had a few days break at the end of being at a conference in a place called Meru in North Kenya, uh, and we were told we can go down to Mombasa, but we were told, you know, it's by the sea, uh, but it is a Muslim stronghold. That's what we were told, the Muslim stronghold. So we went down there. We stayed in a little hotel for a few days. And um, I noticed that the waiters, eyes bright, said, are you born again, sir? I thought, there's waiters asking me. I thought, hey, is there a church here? Oh, yeah, there's a church here. Come to the church. So we go to the church. It's meeting in a tent. And there's 16,000 people there. And I, I don't think they've been told it was a Muslim stronghold. <laughs> And because and, we were slightly late, and, uh, and so, I mean, it's just a huge crowd. And, and when they're worshipping, there's a worship leader and a band are singing, and the pastor, he came up on the platform, and he just exhorted again. He said, come on, are we believing this, what we're singing? And I was really struck by the way he exhorted the people. These are declarations of confidence. And he had, he had raised up a believing church. 
I was so impressed. And we were way back. And at some point, they said, right, we're all going to pray for some. They made some things known that we're going to pray for. And you know what it can be when you're right back in a huge meeting. People can just be there waiting for that to finish. But we noticed all around us, as people praying and praying and walking up and down the aisle, praying. I thought, wow, what a believing church. And it was during the worship, he stopped the worship. He said, now, are we believing this? I thought, this is a spiritual experience that's happening here. We're not just singing songs. He's, he's engaging. Come on, are we believing this? Is this, what, is this where our faith is? Is this our confidence? And, and I thought, this is, this is actually literally dynamic. As they are singing, they are breaking through. They were in a very tough situation, but boy, they'd grown and broken through, praising God, looking to put up a building next. And I thought, hey, these are by no means the preliminaries before the preach. Something dynamic is happening here. People are growing. They're declaring their confidence in God. So important, so important that we do that, that we grow in our confidence, we express. Now, they may have been part of what you sometimes called the faith movement. But aren't we all a faith movement? What are we, the kind of, I'm not sure, movement? Or the, <laughs> we're waiting to see how it turns out movement? <laughs> I, I loved their faith. I loved their courage. I loved the way they sang it out. And I thought, yeah, I want to learn about that. But worship is a dynamic experience where corporate faith grows. And individuals are being helped in their life, in the worship, in the worship. Not just the preliminaries before the preach, but in the worship where faith is growing. Ground is being gained. And then as we kind of rush to our conclusion here, devotion is my third word. Liberty, yeah, we've been cut free, let's sing about it. Faith, we're trusting God. Thirdly, devotion. Something about worship. Jesus said about a situation where a woman came with an alabaster box of perfume. We know the story. She broke it. She poured the perfume out. And Jesus said this. Wherever the gospel is preached, this will be spoken about. So it's great to be in a, you know, a room here today and know that Jesus is happy for me to speak about this. He wants this spoken about. There's something about this that thrilled him. Worship was taking place. You know, sometimes we have a sign outside our building, you know, divine worship takes place at, but you don't necessarily expect this to happen. But she, she kind of broke all the rules, and, and it was so difficult, it was so outrageous, it was so risky, you know, she's letting her hair down. She's got perfume. What's going to happen? Where's this, you know, where's this in the divine worship program? There's something that was just almost excessive, but it was devotion. And beloved, worship has that about it. That there's, there's something of encounter and meeting with him where we express our heart's devotion. And we, we didn't have so much time for worship this morning, but I've been so blessed by the songs we've sung, which express this. We're longing to touch him. We want to be with him. We want to experience him. We want to tell him we love him. We want to have time in the worship. I don't want to make it too 
regimented, but there should, I think, come a time when we are all expressing something of our delight in God. Where we're saying, Jesus, you're wonderful. We know we're warriors, but we're also the bride. And, and worship should include something of an intimacy of where we touch God together. If we lose this, we're losing a huge part of our inheritance. God wants us in worship to be touching him, to be knowing him, enjoying him. Wayne Grudem says, God doesn't need us for anything. Yet it's the amazing fact of our existence that he chooses to delight in us. He goes on to say, to be significant to God is to be significant in the ultimate sense. No greater personal significance can be imagined. God wants us to delight ourselves in him, to enjoy him, to celebrate him, to have heartfelt, wholehearted worship. Where Jesus said things like this, who touched me? <laughs> Yeah, in the meeting, we are reaching to him, we're touching him, we're enjoying him, we're experiencing him. I felt that this morning as we were worshipping. I thought, Lord, I'm touching you, I'm enjoying you. Sadly, I've been to meetings where I've not felt that. But I thought we were helped to draw near. We were led helpfully into the presence of God. It's a huge responsibility. In our worship and our churches, you know, don't just say, oh, he plays the guitar, he can look after this. It's a responsibility of a church. We're coming to God. We want to sing what is appropriate, what's in our hearts. We want to touch him. And, and as, as we, we come to these things, that decisions are made. Devotion is outworked in a context of delight. I remember when we were, we were heading up for one of our gift days at my home church and we were, we were trying to raise £100,000 which is a lot of money for our church uh, and uh, we're just getting there, we're praying about it and praying about it and uh, the day's drawing nearer and uh, uh, you know, we're praying as elders, we're asking God Lord please get us this 100000 it's big money, it's big money, help us to get there and that date's getting nearer and then uh, one of our former prime ministers, a man called John Major, of whom you may never have heard, he came after Margaret Thatcher, uh, who you have heard of, um, uh, he started a thing called a Tessa Fund. And a Tessa Fund meant you could invest every month for seven years and you didn't have to pay tax. So it was a, it was a good thing for families to do. You, you know, every month you put some money in and for seven years and you get the whole thing at the end and you don't have to pay any tax on it. Brilliant deal, brilliant deal. And so as a responsible husband and father, I thought, yeah, I'll take out a Tessa. So I'm putting into that. And uh, it's coming to the seventh year. It's coming to the moment where that's completed. Uh, that's coming to maturity. And, uh, and we're coming up to the building fund and the 100,000 we need to raise. And these two things are coming together. Uh, and I'm in a meeting. And we're singing that old vineyard song, I will worship, ladies echo, I will worship <laughs> with all of my heart, with all of my heart. And, and then there comes this line which says, give you everything. And all the girls say, give you everything. And I'm singing it like this. And Jesus said to me, thank you, I'll have the Tessa.
for the time being, you can keep the rest. But since you're offering me everything, I'll have the Tessa. Seven years. It's in worship. I'm just enjoying Jesus. Give you everything. Thanks. I'll have the Tessa. Oh, so it went in. I, I, I mean, I've seen such giving, such devotion, raising of huge funds. People make decisions, beloved, not coldly. You, you don't make decisions coldly. You make decisions. She took that. She. This, it says about what this perfume. It cost a. It was a year's salary. A year's salary. It's what it cost. She smashed it. Have you ever given anything? That took a year. I've known people give up all sorts of things. They were going to extend the house. We won't do it. Put it in. We were going to go on the holiday. I won't do it. Put it in. Again and again. Give you everything. It's, it's devotion. It's worship. It's, and it, it comes in a context often when we're loving him, expressing it. It's from our hearts. And the church gathered provides a context where devotion can grow. Express love can grow. We build a church of impact where all over this, there's all sorts of stories of where people made big decisions and often they make decisions while they're worshipping. Worship is powerful. It's not a preliminary. It's powerful. It's where people meet God, where, where sanctification gets sorted. When, when you're making, you think, oh, I need... To. See, sanctification is about making good choices, isn't it? And people make good choices often when they're seeing the clarity, I belong to God. He's given everything for me. Worship is a powerful way to see us sanctified. If it were not for worship, I don't think we would have brought through a people who are going. I mean, if you, you read of someone like Hudson Taylor, he not only went to China, he wrote this beautiful commentary on the Song of Songs. You think, how did he find time to do that? But he wrote this beautiful commentary about devotion to Jesus. It's come out of his personal devotion. And it's important for us, beloved, to see that worship is huge for us. It's the Holy Spirit coming upon us. Love is rekindled. Faith is built. Dedication is expressed. Sanctification through encounter. Choices are made. Amen? Worship's huge. The Spirit-filled church is a worshipping church where Jesus is worshipped and adored where confidence in him is expressed our faith grows we make good choices because we keep encountering him in a worship context